Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome to Ohio. This week, we're headed back to school. Well, to a school, anyway. A school that's no stranger to drama. Mostly owing to its focus on the visual and performing arts, but for other reasons, too. Stiver's School for the Arts in Dayton, Ohio, has a long history of shaping young minds and fostering a lifelong love of the creative arts. Founded in 1908, and holding about 900 students, ranging from grade 7 to grade 12, the schools touched the lives of thousands of students and staff during its century of operation. And while most have moved on to build careers, families, and lives in the wide world outside, not everyone who's entered through the doors has come back out again. It was early morning, the gentle glow of sunrise, little more than a threat on the horizon. The caretaker ambled up the front steps of Stiver School, fumbled with the ring of keys at his belt, and swung open the heavy wooden door. The hallways were silent, and he relished those calm moments before the rush of teachers and students brought the building alive in a crashing wave of noise and motion. He followed a well-practiced routine, moving slowly through the halls, opening classroom doors, and flicking on lights. Relaxed, methodical. Room by room, floor by floor. But he liked to save the basement for last. That's where the school's swimming pool was. 
and something about the way the early morning light leaked in through the small basement windows and danced across the still waters always set his day off on a good note. But as soon as he reached the bottom of the stairs, he felt something wasn't quite right. He rounded the corner into the pool room, and his heart dropped like a lead weight in his stomach. There was something in the pool, something floating at the far end, dark and motionless. And he was terrified. He knew exactly what it was. The shape, the police discovered when they pulled it from the pool, was the body of Mary Tyler, a teacher that had worked at Stivers. And there was no mistaking her death as an accident. She was fully clothed, and held tightly in her stiff fingers were a broken pointer and a locket. The locket proved particularly telling, too. Unclasping the small silver keepsake, they found a picture of her parents on one side, and a torn image of what appeared to be a young man on the other. It didn't exactly take a feat of deductive reasoning to figure out that the missing photo was more than likely an image of Mary's murderer. And given the rumors that had been swirling around her for some time now, fingers were pointing quickly and unanimously in one direction. She'd been involved with one of her students, it seems, a senior, and things seemed to be heating up, to be getting serious. But obviously, something had happened to turn the romance sour, and the only one who could shed real light on the mystery was nowhere to be found. Despite all efforts to track him down, the student had vanished and was never heard from. Mary's killer was never brought to justice, and the pool was eventually drained and covered over. Never filled in or demolished, mind you. Instead, a classroom was built over top of it. But the pool itself didn't go into complete disuse, either. A large space like that made a perfect spot for storage. So, a trap door was built into the bottom of the classroom, which, at least in theory, allowed staff access for placing anything they needed kept out of the way. Mostly, it was maintenance staff who went down into the old pool. But occasionally, students would venture down there as well. And it wasn't long before chilling reports of a ghostly inhabitant of the underground pool began to surface. A luminous, pale woman, they said, would appear floating in the air. She would bob and drift aimlessly, hair and clothes swirling around her as though suspended in water. She'd plead silently with whoever she encountered, staring, unblinking with sad, milky dead eyes. But her pleas weren't always silent, either. She was frequently encountered in the network of underground service tunnels hidden deep beneath the school, too. There she wails and shrieks, piercing the stillness with sharp screams and cries, and banging on pipes, desperate for attention and help. The classroom that sits above the pool 
isn't immune to her influence either. Objects have been known to disappear. The temperature fluctuates rapidly, turning from comfortable and warm to bitterly cold in a matter of seconds, and the lights flicker with no perceivable cause or reason. Now, to call a hundred-year-old murder mystery a cold case, that's a bit of an understatement. So if her restless spirit is searching for justice, unfortunately, I don't think she'll be settling down anytime soon. Overall, that doesn't sound to me like an environment all that conducive to focus or studying. It may not appear on any curriculum, but if there's one thing the students at Stiver's School for the Arts are sure to learn, it's the spirit of patience. Let's hear some fiction. Our first story for the evening comes from Mike Ramon, who, quite simply, is a writer living in the Midwest. Children of the Night, join me for Mike Ramon's Killer on the Road, a Tales to Terrify original. It's hard work, but somebody's got to do it. That's the problem with society these days. Well, one of the problems. People are afraid of hard work. Set a tough job in front of them, and right away they start thinking of reasons not to do it. Not me, though. Papa taught me better than that. Papa owned a gas station when I was a kid. This was before the station burnt down under what some people called mysterious circumstances. Some of those same people said that Papa was the one who burnt the station down. For the insurance money, they said. Never said it to Papa's face, of course. They'd never get caught dead saying it to him, or they might need a new set of chompers when he finished with them. Papa didn't suffer no fools. But that ain't what I meant to talk about. The mind wanders sometimes. What I meant to say was that when Papa still had the gas station, and wasn't he proud of actually owning something? He started me working there when I was but 12 years old. He told me, Jesse, a man's gotta earn his way in this world, and you might as well start learning to do so now. And damn it, I worked. I went to the station directly after school Monday through Friday, and I worked there all day on Saturday. Sunday was my one day off, and I was just thankful that Papa made Mama let me off from going to church, so I could have the day to myself. Mama, being a Christian woman through and through, wasn't too happy about the arrangement, but Papa's word was law in our home. I still remember this one time. Hold on. What in the hell is that noise? Do you hear it, or am I imagining something? No, there it is again. Hang on, I'm going to pull over. Come on, let's check the trunk. I think that some bitch back there is still alive. Though I can't see how, after what I did to him. Let me just get this trunk open. Yep, there's the problem. 
Pipe down, you bastard, or I'll really give you something to scream about. Look at the state of him. Pitiful, ain't he? Do me a favor, will ya? And grab me the hammer from inside the car. It's in the back seat there. Go on, get it. <sighs> Fine, I'll get it myself. Just keep an eye on old boy here. All right, let me see. Where is this damn hammer? I swear I left it right here. Ah, got it. Move out of the way, Sonny. You don't want to get any splatter on you. Here we go. One, two, three. Three whacks. It took three whacks to put him out. Must be losing my touch. I'll give him one more for luck. All right, that's that. Close the trunk for me, will ya? I'm going to wipe this hammer down. As another lesson Papa taught me, always keep your tools clean. Okay, hop back in. We got a lot of ground to cover. I want to be in Lubbock before dawn. The highway sure is spooky at night when you're all alone. You get to thinking about all that darkness on both sides of the highway, and you start wondering if something is waiting in that darkness. Waiting for some sorry bitch to get a queer idea in his head to leave the road. Maybe to walk out into the darkness to drain the tank, if you know what I mean. Then that's when it'll get you. Maybe it's the boogeyman? What do the Mexicans call it? The chupacabra. You believe in any of that shit? No, neither do I, not really. But sometimes I wonder. But hell, I ain't alone, am I? I got you with me. Anyway, what was I talking about before I had to deal with that asshole back there? All right, Papa's gas station. This one time, a woman came in and needed her tire changed. Well, I'd never changed a tire in my life. You think that stopped Papa from telling me to go out and change the tire of my own self? No siree, Bob. Just handed me the jack and told me to take care of it. I knew better than to ask questions. The damn tire seemed bigger than me, but that might just be my memory playing tricks on me. I jacked up that car and changed out the tire, and the pretty lady gave me a two-dollar tip. I had to lie to Papa, something I didn't do often, mind you. I told him she only gave me one dollar. He took it off of me, but I got to keep the other dollar, the one he didn't know about. Bought me some candy with it. What do we have here? Speaking of blown tires, nah, this can't be a coincidence. It just can't be. This has got to be a sign. What do you mean, what do I mean? Just look up ahead. Don't you see the station wagon up ahead? Look at that man trying to change that tire. I bet he ain't never changed a tire in his life. Let me see if we can't give him a hand. Tell you what. If you don't want to get your hands dirty, you can just wait right here. Don't go anywhere, okay? I'll be back in a jiffy. Did you miss me? Oh, come on, I wasn't gone that long. I took care of all of them myself, but you're going to have to help me load them into the back of the wagon. Don't give me that face. I did the hard part already. It ain't but four of them. Mommy, Daddy, and the kids. Kids can't weigh more than 80 pounds. Come on, get your ass out of the car and help me. All right, they're all loaded up in the back. 
Get in, we're running late. No, not that car. Get in the wagon, boy. What about the guy in the other car? Nah, there's no room for him. Don't worry none about him. He won't be riding in any rodeos anytime soon. Go on and get in the wagon. I'll take care of the car. I think I still got a spare can of gas in the back seat. Can't leave no evidence, can we? Whoo, boy! Look at it burn. <laughs> Almost burnt my damn eyebrows off. Let's get rambling. I want to be far gone when the fire trucks show up. Go ahead, turn the radio on if you want to hear some music. No, fine with me. Just wait till we get to Lubbock, boy. First thing, we'll dump this wagon, and then I'll take you to Aunt Junie's place. She'll cook us up the biggest breakfast you've ever seen. You like hash browns? Well, you'll get plenty of them. Why do I do what I do? I already told you. It's my job. It started when I read a story someplace about how this old world is getting overpopulated and how there won't be enough food and supplies to go round before too long. So I decided to take the matter in hand and do what nobody else seems to have the cojones to do. Population control, boy. Cullen the herd. Now I ain't saying I don't get some enjoyment out of it. But is that so bad? A man should enjoy his work, shouldn't he? They say you should do what you love. Sure, you don't want to listen to some tunes. Well, I do. Let me find something good. Boy, can't wait to get to Aunt Junie's. Yep, I really think she's gonna like you. That was Mike Ramone's Killer on the Road, as read by, well, me. Link to my embarrassingly outdated personal page is in the show notes. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Our second story this evening comes from Tabitha Lord. Tabitha Lord's Horizon series has won several independent book awards, including the Writer's Digest Grand Prize in 2016. In addition to writing novels and short fiction, Tabitha is a partner and senior writer for Book Club Babble and managing editor for the Inkit Writer's Blog. She lives in Rhode Island with her husband, four kids, and lovable fur babies. Listen with me, children of the night, to Tabitha Lord's Goodbye, Charlie, a Tales to Terrify original. When Charlie awakens before dawn to find the bed empty, the first thing he thinks is, she's cheating. There's absolutely no basis for this errant thought, but it passes through his mind nonetheless. Usually he finds her in the bathroom, or in her studio, or curled in their daughter Julie's empty bed. The digital clock on the night table blinks disdainfully at him for over half an hour before he goes looking for her. She is not in any of these places. He sits on a bar stool in the kitchen and taps his fingers on the granite countertop. The ice maker and a sporadic drip from the sink, the one he is supposed to fix but hasn't gotten around to yet, provide the only break in silence. He knows he is alone in the house. Ten minutes pass. Then fifteen. Finally, he hears the back door rattling. And without knowing why, he rushes up the stairs and dives into bed, feigning sleep. When she tiptoes into the room, sliding her damp, warm body between the sheets, she is slightly out of breath. He rolls toward her and inhales a faint scent of dirt and outdoors. They drive together to the psychiatric hospital to visit their daughter in the pediatric unit. They've worked out a schedule. Kelly, his wife, visits every day in the late morning after Julie's had her breakfast and her first therapy session for the day. And then, the two of them head over after dinner three nights a week. Kelly would go back every night, but he's gently yet firmly established this rhythm. The two of them need something of a life. Julie may never get better. The doctors have prepared them for this possibility. Although, he wonders how any parent prepares for that possibility. Still, he has to think of the future. Of his wife. Of their marriage. Tonight, Julie is at the craft table, painting. He leans in to kiss her forehead, 
and she glances up at him. Eyes glassy and dull. A side effect of the powerful drugs she has to take. They stop the voices, apparently. He pulls out a chair next to her and sits. Kelly takes the seat across the table. Hi, honey, he says gently. Hi, daddy. She answers without looking up. His heart breaks a little. Daddy. She dips her paintbrush into a jar and drags it across the paper. Kelly bites her lip, eyes filling. How was your day today? He asks. Okay, she answers. Another dip, another brush. Red blends with yellow. Did you have math today? He tries again. Math isn't Julie's strong suit, but she was always a good student, always striving for straight A's. Math gave her a run for her money, though. No math. The paintbrush swishes across the page, back and forth, back and forth. He sees her portfolio leaning against the wall next to the table. Edges of thick painting paper peek out. May I look at those? He asks, motioning at the oversized folder. Julie nods. The first painting looks like melting human figures against a backdrop of angry flames, wide black holes where their mouths should be, frozen screams, hair on fire, eyes dripping blood. They remind him of a Holocaust exhibit he's seen at the City College Art Museum, sculpted forms interspersed throughout the space, set amidst photographs of barbed wire and empty shoes. Shuddering, he files the paintings away. That night, the three scotches he's consumed before bed allow him to sleep through his wife's middle-of-the-night wanderings. But the next morning, when he leaves for work, he notices muddy footprints across the kitchen floor. Dark circles rim Kelly's eyes at the breakfast table. Stress, he thinks. A day later, he catches her huddled in the corner of the bedroom, hands over her ears, rocking and mumbling, be quiet, under her breath. When he pulls her up from the floor, she buries her head in his shoulder, insisting she is fine. She just isn't sleeping well. She spends entire days in her art studio, abandoned when Julie first got sick, but now seemingly a haven. When he asks to see her work, she refuses. When he tries anyway, he finds the door locked. She drinks more, but then, so does he. On a Tuesday night, he awakens to find her gone from the bed again. Fear churns in his stomach, hot and acidic, and he is momentarily frozen in place. This time when he hears the clicking of the doorknob, he rushes down the stairs in his boxers, afraid if he stops to put on a sweatshirt, he'll climb back under the covers in silence, in denial. 
He flips the light on in the kitchen, just as Kelly steps inside. She doesn't blink. Her eyes are glazed and dull. Her movements, awkward and heavy. Kelly, he whispers. She walks past him to the stairs, her paint-smeared t-shirt plastered to her body with sweat. He says her name, loudly this time. When she doesn't pause, he thinks she must be sleepwalking. When she enters their bedroom, he moves in front of her and touches her arms to give her a gentle shake. Now she blinks, her eyes widen, and she screams. It's okay. It's okay. It's just a dream, he says soothingly, pulling her to him. We have to get Julie. There isn't much time. She pushes away, frantic. No, honey. You just had a bad dream. I'm almost ready. Please, let's get Julie. She rummages through the drawers, tugs on a pair of pants. He grabs her hands to stop her, noticing the dirt under her fingernails, a smear of it across her cheek. No! She shouts at him. We have to get Julie. It's coming. He wants to break down and cry. He wants to shout back at her just to fucking pull it together. Instead, he says, Okay, Kel, we'll go get Julie. In the car, she sits next to him, picking her cuticles. I'm sorry I didn't tell you before. It's okay. When she realizes that he's brought her to the emergency department, she tries to run. Security has to restrain her. She begs him to listen. Please listen. Once she is sedated, and the attending doctor has issued a 72-hour psychiatric hold, he wanders to the waiting room, sits on a plastic mint-green chair, and sobs. It's Saturday. He visits Julie first. She doesn't ask about her mother, and he doesn't offer. They share a contraband bag of M&Ms at a picnic table in the enclosed yard. A whisper of a smile crosses Julie's lips when she pops a piece of colored candy in her mouth. As he drives to the adult ward across town, he wonders if crazy runs in families. He considers that Kelly may have given their daughters some kind of illness of the mind, even though Julie exhibited symptoms first. He blames his wife, rages at her from behind the wheel of his Toyota Camry. And then he is nearly crushed by a wave of guilt and shame. When he arrives at the hospital, he speaks with the doctor first. Words like schizophrenia, psychosis, and bipolar disorder are thrown around. But they haven't settled on a diagnosis yet. Kelly is sitting in a chair in her room, bundled under a blanket in the over-air-conditioned room. Her face, 
devoid of makeup and scrubbed clean, looks childlike. Her eyes shine with the same hazy confusion as Julie's, but when she looks up at him, he sees fear reflected in them too. Her lips tremble. Please, take me home. Soon, honey, he says, kneeling in front of her, taking her cold hands in his. She knows he is full of shit and turns her head away. He spends the next hour trying to talk to her about her plans for the garden, about a weekend getaway they've been thinking about since before Julie got sick, about the paint color she's chosen for the kitchen. Each time he speaks and is met by withering silence, he feels his marriage, his family, his life slipping away. When he stands to leave, she stares at him intensely and in a clear, sharp voice says, Three. That night he kills half a bottle of scotch. When he thinks he hears whispering from Kelly's art studio, he ignores it with such willful self-deception that he almost laughs at his own stubbornness. He spends Sunday morning repairing the sink and doing odd jobs around the house, delaying the inevitable trip to see Kelly for as long as he can. When he finally shows up at lunchtime, the bite of bleach in the entryway stings his nose. The odor of cleaning products combined with the smell of cafeteria-cooked food turns his stomach. Glancing at his watch, he wonders how long he has to stay without being an asshole. He checks in at the front desk, signs the log, and trudges down the hall towards Kelly's room. She is napping. Her thin form curls atop the bed, hands tucked under her cheek, tangled hair falling over her face. Carefully, he lowers himself into the chair next to her bed. She blinks, sighs, in that blissful moment of post-sleep, before memory floods into her drugged, damaged mind, she smiles at him. He smiles back, swallowing the lump in his throat and reaching to brush a dark curl off her forehead. As soon as he touches her, she shrinks away from him. Manic eyes dart across the room, her breath comes in quick bursts, and a fine sheen of sweat breaks out on her forehead. It's coming, she says. We need to get Julie. I just have a little more to do. She pushes herself up, tries to stand on shaking legs. Honey, calm down, he says, thinking that those words have probably never calmed a single person. Help me, she shouts. Find my coat. He rushes out of the room, searching for a nurse. Thirty minutes later, she is sedated, resting comfortably, according to her doctor. He leans over her to kiss her goodbye. 
she finds his hand and squeezes with surprising strength, turning his knuckles white. Two, she says. He switched from scotch to vodka, not because he really likes it, but because it seems to hit him harder, faster. His throat burns, but he's already feeling the pleasant, numbing buzz in his brain. Wandering the house, glass in hand, ice clinking. He stops in front of Kelly's art studio. He jiggles the doorknob. Locked. He takes a long swig, turns to go, and then here's the whispers. There is an urgency to the indecipherable chatter, an urgency that compels him to tug at the door handle harder and harder. Finally, he steps back and kicks. Wood splinters, his vodka splashes down the front of his shirt, and the door swings open. The faint, waxy smell of acrylic wafts by, and chalk dust, disturbed by his violent entry, floats up his nose. He sneezes, spilling the rest of the vodka onto the wood floor of the studio. Afternoon sunlight casts dancing shadows on the wall, illuminating Kelly's handiwork. Paintings and chalk drawings cover every surface, taped haphazardly to the walls, hanging from wires with clothespins, strewn over the work table. At first, he can't make sense of the jumble of color, of the chaos, so unlike Kelly's usual style of soft-hued tones and gentle lines. But when he looks closely, taking time to examine each one, a theme emerges. Fire. Fire consumes buildings, trees, whole cities. Bodies are immolated. Skin melts. Flames shoot from burning hair. He can practically smell it. Amid the horror, lovely renderings of the backyard garden shed hang, innocent among the corrupt. Kelly has captured the exact gray of weathered wood, the glint of sunlight off dirty windows, the precise angle of the roof. There are nearly as many pictures of the garden shed as there are of the gruesome apocalyptic scenes. His alcohol-addled brain struggles to process what he's looking at. And before he can come up with something rational, he's in the yard, fishing through his pockets for the keys, spilling change and dropping his Swiss army knife onto the muddy ground. With slow, deliberate motions, he retrieves his items, stands on shaking legs, and carefully unlocks the garden shed door. Like their office-turned-art studio, the shed has become Kelly's domain. At first glance, all seems normal. Neatly organized tools hang from a rack, half-filled bags of soil slump against the wall, and tiny plants grown from seed, sit on tables and reach toward the warmth of heating lamps. They'd always called this little building the garden shed, and that's what they'd used it for. But in reality, it was a sturdy old structure 
built on a cement foundation the same as the house. They'd talked once of turning it into a small rental apartment. Extra income for Julie's college fund. Now, he surveys the interior space with the paranoid suspicions of a drunk. He scans the tools and eyes the baby plants, tripping once on his own feet as he staggers around the room. When he is finally about to leave, he catches sight of something glinting on the floor behind the table. He squints at a handle protruding from the floor and wonders why he never noticed it before. It looks like a trap door. Searching the workbench, he finds a flashlight and then proceeds to pull open the door. Rusted metal hinges creak. A wooden staircase descends into darkness. He peers down the hole, shining his flashlight into the depths. He can't see much. Wiping sweat from his brow and holding the flashlight with a death grip, he heads down. He counts eight steps before his shoes crunch on the dirt floor. Moving the flashlight in a slow, sweeping arc, he surveys the cavernous cellar. Metal shelves line the far wall, stacked full of canned goods, bottled water, and kerosene lamps. A camp stove sits in one corner. Three sleeping bags and accompanying air mattresses are piled in another corner. Plastic crates filled with who knows what are stacked floor to ceiling. When he shines the light on them, he recognizes Kelly's looping script on the black Sharpie marker inscribed labels. First aid, winter gear, toiletries, kitchen items. The flashlight falls to the ground as he rushes back up the stairs. He goes to work on Monday because he can't think of how else to fill his day. But by lunchtime, he knows he's useless. He drives mindlessly to the hospital. Turning up the collar of his jacket against the bitter March wind, he jogs across the parking lot wishing desperately for a drink. He thinks vaguely that he's crossed some kind of line and is now truly an alcoholic. When he turns the corner into Kelly's room, he finds her sitting at the small desk, sketching with soft charcoal. He stops in his tracks, afraid to look at whatever image has slithered out of her brain and onto the paper. But when he steps closer, he sees it is just a tree. The bare branches reach skyward. The way she has shaded and smeared the color suggests motion, wind, a piece of art that the old Kelly would make. He wonders silently when that Kelly began slipping away, replaced by this haunted version. Hey, Kel, he says, knocking softly. She glances at him and then returns to drawing. She's in the chair, so he sits at the edge of the bed. How are you feeling today? She raises her eyebrows disdainfully, throwing him a look that he's been on the receiving end of before today. But this familiar, normal exchange doesn't last. 
In the next moment, she's agitated, begging him to take her home, to go pick up Julie, to help her finish getting ready. He rubs a hand over his face. Kelly, we'll figure this out. Let's give the doctors a little more time to help you. Defeated, she sinks back into the chair. <sighs> okay. A tear slips down her cheek as she returns to her sketch. He waits ten minutes, then stands to leave, hands stuffed in the pockets of his coat. I'll see you tomorrow, he says. She pushes herself out of the chair and walks to him. Her lower lip quivers, and she reaches to hug him. Goodbye, Charlie, she says softly, burying her face in his neck. He holds her, stroking her back, touching her hair. We'll figure this out, he repeats. And for a moment, he believes it. Before she steps away, he thinks he hears her whisper. One. His cell phone rings, jarring him from sleep. He used to silence the phone at bedtime, but since Julie got sick, it's always on. Just in case. Leary-eyed, he grabs it off the night table and swipes to answer. There's been an incident. Kelly has been transported to the emergency room. He has to come immediately. His heart pounds against his ribcage as he shoves his legs into jeans and pulls on a sweatshirt and jacket. The faster he drives, the slower time seems to move. Ditching the car in the temporary parking lot outside the ER, he rushes inside. Although well after midnight, ambulances line the entryway. EMTs rush in and out, and a crowd fills the brightly lit waiting room. My wife is here, he says to the nurse at the triage. Kelly Hansen. The nurse looks at him for one second longer than she should before asking him to have a seat. Someone will be right with him. When, a few moments later, another nurse escorts him into a small private room behind the triage desk, he knows something is terribly wrong. Sweat beads on his forehead. The doctor walks in, white lab coat billowing. Charlie wishes he could freeze time and never hear the words that are coming next. Words like exsanguinated and self-inflicted. Can I see her? He asks. Of course, the doctor answers. Kelly is covered up to her chest in a clean white sheet. A nurse quietly moves equipment around, tidies up the space, pulls a chair over for him. I'll give you a few minutes alone. He sits, staring at his dead wife. Her face is waxy, and her lips are tinged blue. But otherwise, it looks like she might open her eyes and yawn, ask him if he's made the coffee yet. But she will never open her eyes again. 
Methinks maybe he should cry. Or be angry with her. Or something. Instead, numbness envelops him like a fog. The nurse returns. Does he need anything? Is there someone he can call to help him make arrangements? They'll need to move her soon. He shakes his head, stands to leave, then finds he can't quite make his legs work. The nurse touches his shoulder and waits for him. In the lobby, he is greeted by the administrator of Kelly's psych ward. I'm so very sorry, Mr. Hansen, the administrator says. We have no idea how she got hold of it. Charlie squints at the nervous gentleman. Got hold of what? The pocket knife. We're very careful. Rooms are searched regularly. Knives of any sort aren't used, even at mealtime. Charlie swallows hard, remembers Kelly hugging him goodbye. We found her very quickly and made every effort to resuscitate her. I can assure you. Charlie backs away, turns, and rushes out of the ER. When he pats his pockets in search of his keys, he finds his Swiss army knife missing. Hot coffee in hand, liberally dosed with whiskey. He watches the sky change from deep blue to pale pink. Steam rises from the cup, wisps of white against the chill morning air. Birds chatter and hop about on the frost-covered lawn, pecking for their breakfasts, gathering materials for nest-making. He breathes in the earthy, damp scent of dawn. Today, he has to see Julie and break the news to her. He wonders if she'll feel anything at all, drugged as she is. The idea that she might not actually brings him perverse comfort. He is trying very hard not to feel anything either. But he knows this is just the calm before the storm, the quiet on the beach before a tidal wave hits. As he turns to go back in the house, he hears whispering again. It's his imagination. He knows this. But still, this time, it's coming from the garden shed. He steps off the back deck, compelled to move closer. When he is outside the door, the whispers stop. Everything stops. Whirling around, he searches the trees for birds, the ground for squirrels. Silence crushes the breath out of him. In the distance, from his hilltop property line, he sees a blinding flash blaze across the sky. He drops his mug, the coffee and booze splatter his sneakers. The voices resume. This time they tell him to hurry. He pulls open the garden shed door. A distant rumble fills the air. 
It's coming, they warn. He cuts his hand on the sharp metal handle while trying to lift the trap door. Blood drips onto his shoes, joining the coffee stains. He tries again. The shed rattles. The roaring is so close he feels it inside his head. Lifting again, he rushes down, stumbling on the steps. The trap door slams on top of him, sealing him into darkness. That was Tabitha Lord's Goodbye, Charlie, as read by Heather Thomas. Heather Thomas is a jewelry expert by day and master of none by night, dabbling in costuming, art, music, writing, and narration. She is a lifelong fan of all things horror and enjoys reading stories and novels to her friends and family when they let her. She lives in Denver, Colorado, with her husband, and her spoiled rotten cat, Oni. Thank you, Heather. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. We love your support over on Patreon or via PayPal on our website. Tales to Terrify is free to listen to, but it isn't free to produce. Bringing you quality stories week after week is a labor of love and terror, and a small donation goes a long way. Go to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, or donate via PayPal through the link near the bottom of our homepage, tales to terrify.com. Also, like us or leave a review on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we dive deep into murky waters with more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.